Här har ni Ingemar Fast, konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Och jag vill uppmana er att lyssna till samtalet som följer mellan författaren Maria Stepanova, Ryssland och hennes författande kollega, svenska kollega Ida Börjel. Slå er till ro och njut. God kväll. Good evening. Thank you, Ingemar. Hi, Maria. How are you? Fine, thank you. And uh, thanks to all of you for being here today. Maria Stepanova is an award-winning poet who has published a dozen of poetry books. She is also an essayist, a journalist, a defender of the free press, and the founder of an independent, crowd-funded cultural media site called Kalta. And in addition, she has published her first book of prose, Pamjati, Pamjati, Minne of Minnet. It has been translated into German so far, and I think there are also ongoing translations, right? Yeah, a small number of them, yeah. yeah. So the two of us met a year ago at the International Poetry Festival in Rotterdam, which is why I am sitting here tonight, hoping to maybe also, in a way, pick up a few threads in the conversation that we started having, but we never really ended, I think. Memory of memory consists of a vast spectrum of genres and tropes. You'll find a novel, a family memoir. You will find essays on art and literature, on memory and trauma. Further on to travelogues, love letters and diaries, and pictures in words. It has been called an odyssey through the past of a large Russian-Jewish family moving across Russia, across Europe in the 20th century. To set the tone tonight, um, we have decided on starting with reading a, a small excerpt from the book, right? There finns människor som existerar här i världen, inte som ting utan som ovidkommande små stänk eller prickar på ett ting. Есть люди, которые существуют на свете не как предмет, а как посторонние крапинки или пятнышки на предмете. Именно такими, я кажется, вижу своих родных с их хрупкой и незаметной жизнью, похожей на крапчатое птичье яйцо. Нажмешь и хрустнет. То, что на поверку они, а не я, проявили когда-то способность к выживанию, а вместе с ними и невеликого вкуса кожаные кресла и собрания русской классики, только делало их еще уязвимей. На фоне фигурантов, прочно обосновавшихся на исторической сцене, квартиранты с их фотоальбомами и открытками к Новому году – казались обреченными на забвение. Более того, и сама я их уже не помнила. 
Det var ju precis så jag behandlade mina egna släktingar och deras undandragna liv som verkade så sköra som om de skulle brista vid minsta kontakt som fågelägg. Att de i själva verket tålde en hel del till skillnad från mig och ägde en viss överlevnadsförmåga samt en del skinnförtöljer och samlade utgåvor av ryska klassiker verkade bara göra dem mer sårbara. Dessa fotoalbumens och vikortens hyresgäster tycktes vara dömda att glömmas till skillnad från de fåtal personer som man svårligen kan tänka bort från den historiska scenen. Till och med jag hade ju svårt att minnas dem. Men bland allt det som var oklart, omtvistat eller helt okänt fanns ändå vissa saker som jag alltid med full visshet hade vetat om min släkt. Ingen hade dött under revolutionen eller inbördeskriget. Ingen hade drabbats av repression. Ingen hade dött i förintelsen. Ingen hade blivit dödad förutom Jodik. Ingen hade dödat. Nu gick det plötsligt att betvivla också dessa självklarheter om de inte redan avslöjats som rena felaktigheter. En gång när jag var 10-12 år kom jag till mamma med en fråga av det slag som man ofta går och bär på i den åldern. Vad är du mest rädd för? Jag vet inte vad jag hade förväntat mig att få höra, förmodligen krig. För i Sovjet på den tiden hade Kants stjärnklara himmel blivit ersatt av en fredens himmel. Hela landet väntade på och fruktade det tredje världskriget. I skolan fick man lära sig hur man skulle förbereda sig för kriget. Hur man skulle sätta ihop och plocka isär en Kalashnikov. Och vad man skulle göra vid ett kärnvapenangrepp. I det senare fallet skulle man dock inte få användning för den förra kunskapen. Gummorna som alltid satt på bänken utanför porten brukade muttra bara det inte blir krig. Men mammas svar kom snabbt och överraskande och var svårt att förstå. Det var som om hon hade haft formuleringen på tungan länge och bara väntat på att någon skulle fråga. Jag blev så förbluffad att jag lade det på minnet för alltid. Mamma sa... Jag är rädd för att man ska begå våld på individen. Where to begin? A night like this. Well, I think of this conversation maybe also as a way of trying to enter into your book. So let's start maybe with a cover. Uh, the Swedish edition, um, the cover differs from the Russian one. Mm -hmm. And there are these little figures of porcelain. Yeah. Can you tell us about them? Uh, well, it might be interesting to compare the covers. <laughs> and uh, I must say that uh, I'm totally for the Swedish one because it is so beautiful. But both the covers are depicting a certain object that means for me a lot. And uh, I would suppose that uh, it, it has something to do with our 
long-lasting conversation, because from the moment we have met, we've been talking about, about history and what does it do to our, the humble people. And uh, uh, I suppose that this tiny figurine uh, is a perfect metaphor uh, for the process and uh, its consequences. It is something, it has a story, of course, everything has a story. Uh, this one goes like that. Uh, I've been at a flea market in Moscow, and a lady was selling a bunch of these tiny porcelain persons. And uh, all of them had uh, visible traces of physical damage. And uh, I was looking for a while for something more or less, uh, well, intact. And, uh, and uh, then I've asked the seller well, what could it mean. And the answer was striking. Uh, the tiny thing was uh, produced in mass quantities during the end of the 19th century and in the beginning of 20th century as well. And it was a multi-purpose thing, so to speak. Uh, it was used mainly as a stuffing when the uh, fragile things were being transported. And also, it costed almost nothing in Russia, uh, not even a kopeck, but a half of a kopeck, which is quite close to nothing. And so people were baking them in cakes, for instance, uh, or just uh, using them uh, any way they found possible, because it costed nothing, and it was no big grief to part with such a thing. And uh, the name of uh, the, the, the tiny dolls were Frozen Charlotte, which also has a story of its own. But uh, here, I guess I'll better stop here. And uh, <laughs> because, yeah, uh, it is always like that with storytelling, right? You, you're starting to tell one story, and it invites another one, and it goes endlessly. Uh, but for me, it is representing something, well, significant. Uh, I'm considering myself and uh, every member of my family I was writing about, and uh, every living human being, uh, this sort of a frozen charlotte, a porcelain doll that had been used and damaged for the needs of, of history for the needs of 20th century. We are all survivors of sort, because we are the direct result of history events that had taken place uh, years ago, decades ago, sometimes a century ago. And uh, I, feel, I feel so close to this tiny thing, uh, because, well, with her, the damage is much more visible. That's uh, why I wanted to keep it in the book and at the cover as well. So a tiny entity that is uh, next to nothing, as you say, that is something that you turn to and discover, and you call it your Aleph mm -hmm. in the book, uh, referring also to Borges. It's your Aleph and another person who played with these little dolls or figurines was Marina Tsvetaeva. Yeah, right. And 
please continue the story a little bit more with telling about what she actually saw in these figures ah, as well. Yeah, no, that is interesting because, uh, uh, as I found out, I knew the uh, not the story, but the figurine uh, from from my own childhood when I was reading Tsvetaeva a lot, which was an unusual thing to do because uh, Tsvetaeva was not really uh, much published in the Soviet Union. But finally, at the beginning, at 1978, no, at 1979, uh, they've uh, decidedly published a couple of volumes and uh, uh, they were given as a gift to my mother on the New Year's Eve. And I've stumbled upon these two books and uh, couldn't part with them for, for some 40 years. And uh, one of the stories in the book was about uh, an everyday journey. The small Svitaeva, not older than I was at the time, she was overtaking this journey uh, they were visiting the monument to Pushkin, Alexander Pushkin, the great Russian poet and, uh, mm, and a person who represents poetry, maybe, for, for, for all the people writing or thinking in Russian. And uh, she had a game of sorts. She was bringing over this tiny white figurine, and she was comparing it with Pushkin because he was so huge and black, and it was so enormously tiny and white, and so the, the, the figurine was giving her some important lesson of, of not of size, but of, of the scope of, thing, of things. Uh, what is uh, a human being comparing it to the deity of sorts? And uh, she's she, she was asking herself if Pushkin would be able to notice the doll, what would he think of it? And if the doll would see Pushkin, what would she it think of, it, of him? And the answer was she would be unable to see him because I am, me, Marina Tsvitaeva, I am so enormously huge for the doll. But Pushkin, who is much, much huger than myself. For her, he would be something like a tempest. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's a lesson of scale, I suppose, and uh, it's an important one. So in, in finding your Aleph, and we don't have to explain exactly what that means for the book, but you were also, as you mentioned, you were looking for one of those dolls that were as intact as possible, whereas most of them were broken, missing an arm or body parts. So trying to look for something that is still intact, uh, I just want to strike a note, note on that. And uh, if we continue with trying to open the book, it's uh, labeled family romance. And um, also from this tiny, you know, just line I draw about what it's about, you looking um, and, and, uh, into the past of your family. I know that you have spent a very long time not writing this book, but living with it in your mind. And that you've also spent a long time writing it. Can you talk a little bit about what, 
was the book you imagined in, in relation to this label of family romance? Uh, I'll try to, uh, but again, it's a long story because uh, it... Tell it. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, well, it has started, uh, again, long ago in the, uh, in the beginning of, of 1980s because I kind of always knew no one had asked me to do it and uh, no one uh, had even told me uh, that these things are being done. But I somehow always knew that... Uh, when I'll grow up, I'll I have uh, something to do. I'll have to write a book about my family. Why so? I didn't know. But it, the urge to do it was very intense. And uh, it is funny, but while I've been researching uh, for the book, uh, browsing through the different piles and boxes and uh, heaps of papers in the family archive, I found something belonging to me. And uh, that was a school notebook, uh, an ordinary Soviet one, you know, uh, with rosy cover and the, the pioneer oath at the back page. I, the young pioneer of the Soviet Union, uh, am promising to do this and that. And uh, in the book, um, there was a beginning of this very book. I've tried to write a, a family story when I was 12. And I've managed to cover some, uh, some eight pages, I suppose, which is a decent amount for a 12-year-old. Um, and uh, since that, I was becoming less and less sure that I would ever be able to do it. First of all, because the story needed craft and skill and willpower as well. And uh, on the other hand, it was so easy, or seemed to be so easy to do when I was a child, because the storyteller in the family was my mother. And uh, that is interesting. I suppose, uh, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I suppose that somehow uh, it is a common way of being. Uh, the one who is telling all the stories, the one who is keeping the family members, the family memories intact, is usually a female person. It is the mother or, or the grandmother, the person who owns the story, the narrating voice of the family. At least in my case, it was my mother. But now, uh, was it the same in your family? What would you say? I have several questions on this topic. It's really interesting, uh -huh. and I will, I will. Let's get back to that. Okay, yes. let's back to that. Yes. Uh, so, okay, uh, uh, I'm endlessly curious about all the family stories, uh, and uh, I, I have to say that this obsession didn't stop when the book was finished. So, so, uh, so yeah. Uh, you're just starting asking questions, and it is becoming more and more interesting. But the thing is, our storytellers are also fragile, and they die, and uh, nothing is left uh, with the exception of a number of stories I didn't write down when I was a kid. And a number of photographs I have to connect with the stories. And uh, 
it doesn't really help because uh, there is a, a lot of uh, people who were young in the beginning of the 20th century with the long skirts and mustaches and whatever else. And I have to understand somehow uh, who is, who was the hero of this or that story, who did uh, gamble a lot and uh, spent all his money on it and uh, was uh, forced, well, he, he had to sell his university diploma to make one more gamble. Uh, uh, maybe this guy, he looks like, as if he could do something like that, or maybe not. You never know. And uh, when it comes to family stories, uh, you know much less than you don't. And uh, so after some 40 years of thinking about it, I was facing a pure impossibility of writing the book I was born for. And uh, so I kind of had to find another way, a different way. Of course, I could, and uh, maybe I should, but uh, for me it wasn't a question. Uh, maybe I could just invent the whole story to pretend that the, all the lines are direct, that I know all the details, that I own the story. But it is not so. It's the story that is owning me. And uh, so I had to be very precise, capturing, preserving, trying to save all the things I know with uh, more, well, more or less for sure, and uh, to do something else with the rest. And I still don't know if I had succeeded, because, um, because when you know nothing, you're starting to to find similarities, correspondences, things that would go as an answer. And uh, the amount of these things is endless. So you, you, you just need to start. Yeah, let's continue talking about this now. I mean, the, there's a quote. You're saying that the book about my family turned out to be about something else and how memory works and what it demands of me. About the woman and the mother perspective, the mother as the one who tells. Since childhood, this is the picture I get, since childhood and through the storytelling of your mother, you had a view of your family as matriarchal Maybe that would be the English word for it, I guess. In in Swedish. Centered, in a way, around heroines. Mm, yeah. Or the image of a heroine. Mm -hmm. um, and there is, in the book, a, a very specific photograph that uh, reoccurs in the text, which makes one think that a very different version of your book could it have been titled Grandma at the Barricades? Could you tell us a bit about the picture and the person? Mm -hmm. uh, that's what um, uh, I, I, I really wonder if, uh, the, if, if our family was as matriarchal as it may seem because uh, the male presence was quite visible. But somehow, when I'm thinking about, when I'm thinking backwards, when I'm trying to 
think about my family as a line, uh, as a sort of thread coming back to the past. The ones who are holding the thread are female. My mother, her mother, my babushka, my grandmother, and her mother, my grand-grandmother, Sarah, who was definitely the most interesting subject of my childhood years because, well, she was everything uh, I couldn't be or uh, everything that I never supposed to be. Uh, in her younger years, she joined the revolutionary movement in Russia, which was quite popular. Uh, and uh, she was fighting at the barricades uh, during the riots of 1905. And uh, then she was continuing her involvement until she was imprisoned in 1907. Uh, and she was uh, imprisoned not anywhere else, but at the Petropavlovskaya Krepost, one of the most magnificent buildings uh, in St. Petersburg, which by accident or by no accident also happened to be a prison. Uh, and so uh, when uh, my mother was visiting St. Petersburg, Leningrad then, uh, together with, uh, with me, uh, she was showing me the building, saying, well, that's where Babushka was living at the time. <laughs> but luckily, she didn't uh, stay there for, she didn't, was, she, she didn't uh, live there for, for, for a long time. She was exiled to Paris, well, which sounds good, in fact. Uh, she was not, not, not really exiled here. Her family, which were kind of well-to-do, they were trying to help her somehow. And bribery, I suppose. Uh, and uh, at a certain point, uh, the family was facing the question, she was uh, to stay in Russia and to be sentenced, sentenced to exile into Siberia, or she could uh, just leave the country. And of course, that, 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 that was a natural choice. So she was living in, uh, in Paris for, for, for a number of years, till the beginning of World War I. And she was studying there. Uh, she was, uh, was one of the first uh, women gynecologists in, in, in Russia, and a respected one. And when she came back, she could. It was, uh, it was the times of great political tension. So the natural sequence of things, the natural thing to do was, I suppose, to come back to the revolution, to join the former comrades. But that is something she didn't. She just married my future grand-grandfather and was living a very quiet, very ordinary, very insignificant life. And in the Soviet times, when she was uh, filling out the famous endless questionnaires. What, would, what were you doing before the revolution? Were you somehow connected with the revolutionary movement? She always answered no, as if she didn't want to have anything to do with her memories. And yeah, the, um, uh, she, she's, she was and is one of the most significant figures in the book. But I want to add uh, one small thing. Uh, uh, yeah, she was a mesmerizing myth in my childhood years. But the main 
point of my book was trying to write about the other members of the family with the history is not so striking, with the lives quite ordinary or seemingly ordinary, so that they would become no less visible than Babushka Sara is. And uh, again, I don't know if I had succeeded, but I was trying my best to do that because for me, the choice between the interesting things and uh, the things not so visible, the things that are somehow staying in the dark is a very important one. And uh, I prefer not to make it. Which is also possible to relate to the figure, of course, of the stuffing versus the object that is surrounded by the, the ones that are supposed to hold up uh, or so on. Um, but I find it fascinating to start talking about her as well, also in, in relation to, as you say, that she was presented or uh, turned into a slightly mythical person. Yeah, but that was the story and story, storyteller. Yes, but and then I'm thinking that was also done by a mother to her daughter, and maybe there was a reason for uh, the mother trying to give uh, the daughter an, a role model or an image or a sense of of a possibility. Maybe you're right. Yes. To 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 uh, you know be reflected in. I would like to make a small excursion here also. What's, if there is a label, how would you label your family? Would you say that it's a family of, of assimilated Jews? Is that, is that how you would describe it? Or mm, I would say, well, I would say that it is a, it's a family of contradictions because it is consisting, it was consisting of different, different persons, different types that belonged to different social stratas. And uh, I suppose that uh, my own being is a direct outcome of the revolution, because the, these people would never meet, uh, if not the, 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 the um, 1914 or 1917. Uh, one of my grandfathers was uh, the son of uh, a Russian peasant, uh, who lived in enormous poverty. And when he was able to do it, he immediately joined the revolutionary movement. Uh, the other grandfather was a son of um, a, a factory owner from the uh, south of Russia, now as Ukraine. Uh, the other branch is assimilated Jews, um, assimilated, educated, and not caring very much about about religion at all, but caring a lot about well, about uh, social matters and the idea of transforming the world into something better. And the other branch, uh, again, they were uh, they came out of shtetl uh, with almost no books uh, except the Torah. And uh, so uh, it is, yeah, it's a family of contradictions and coincidences, I suppose. 
But when, because when you mentioned that uh, Sarah was um, sent or moved to Paris in order to study medicine, it is also described, I think, as a, as a ticket for her, uh, since there were restrictions in being a Jew mm -hmm. of where you were, were able to move or live or work in Russia at that time. Which was, she was an, an example of that, but that it was not that uncommon. Uh, I'm thinking now of the way you, you describe the, the faculties and the universities in, in France, for instance, yeah, yeah. but also Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it was so, and uh, especially from, uh, from the people who were coming from the, uh, from the uh, middle class or lower class fam families, because if you were well, wealthy enough, you were able to join the university, but not uh, also with a, with a number of uh, difficulties uh, you were to be facing, because there was a certain percent of Jews that were allowed to, to, uh, to enter the university in the first place. So, yeah. And also having a, a doctor's uh, title mm -hmm. would open up new doors, right? Uh, I, I suppose so. But uh, again, uh, there was a there was a stronger, stronger and liberating movement uh, all over Russia, uh, consisting mainly of the women who were keen into getting themselves an education, and uh, as it was hard. To, to, to do in Russia due to a number of reasons, they were uh, they were moving somewhere else to Germany, to Switzerland, to, to, to France, mm. from the mid 19th century, as a matter of fact. Mm. Because I think it, there is this is sort of a note saying then well reminding me as a reader of a Jewishness and and the way the restrictions to where, which cities you were able to live in and so forth. And I was thinking that that's the way I perceive how the Jewish heritage and identity mm -hmm. is being um, depicted in the novel. Mm -hmm. It's something that is not explicitly explained or, you know, thinking of pre prejudices like with big parties or celebrations or religious... Um, um, uh, uh, celebrations and so forth, mm -hmm. but there are a number of places in the book where Jewishness is something that comes suddenly pointed out, as in your parents telling you, "No, you're a Jew. You cannot allow yourself not to study," mm -hmm. or uh, the man in in the hotel lobby somewhere saying that, "Wait a minute, aren't you a Jew?" Uh, and and there's uh, also a wonderful picture of a man with a horse. With a horse, yeah. But it comes as a sudden rem reminder. Mm. I think that well, everything can can become a reminder. Uh, but uh, uh, there is an interesting an interesting layer. I suppose you're right uh, that the, for the majority of Russian Jews at least assimilated Russian Jews in the beginning of century, it was no more about religion. The whole thing was about education. And so education was becoming a new cult. And I suppose that this cult is still very, very, very much alive. You have to, to have education. It was uh, like a 
you know, silent prayer that was going through the decades. You have to become something. You, you have to make something out of yourself. And uh, it could be, I suppose it could be quite traumatic as well. Because, because, because it also relates to your mother, right? That she wanted to, to study at the literary institution, yes, but was, she was told not poetry. to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, she, but, but yes, she couldn't because uh, her father, he, uh, he just forbid her, forbid her uh, to, to, to go into the literary world because he was thinking that the girl should have a profession. And so she became an engineer. But I have no profession. <laughs> I just write. Again, the position of the storyteller, the one who also remembers, narrates, the mother, and maybe then the daughter as someone who inherits the task of telling or the imperative, you should be the one who, who tells. Is that, you think, something that has meant a struggle for you, not being able to keep telling in the way that your mother told the stories? I'm thinking about the way this book also is such a gentle, but still insisting struggle on not romanticizing or trying to think clearly or see clearly. Well, I do suppose it is an enormous task to be able to preserve your family for whatever posterity you may get. And uh, it, is, it is demanding and uh, it is almost impossible because nothing can be preserved, preserved safely enough. Uh, and uh, the fact that I suppose I didn't... Uh, I didn't consider the task belonging to me. It wasn't my own intention. It was just something I I felt that I have to do. It is just plain and simple. You, Someone is giving you a package and telling that it has to be delivered. And off you go. Uh, and uh, yeah, it takes time, it takes effort. And uh, uh, most of all, you are afraid to fail the person who gave you the package. And if it is your mother, well, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, after I was done with the book, it was a strange sensation, well, maybe not of the gestalt closed, but of, of liberation, because uh, I've done something I was attempting to do throughout my lifetime, and uh, now I was completely free. And uh, on the other hand, uh, it is a strange, it's a strange feeling, not, not having that request from the outside, not having the direction. You can do anything you want to, you can write anything you want to, because when I've been writing previously, it was Mm. A special form of procrastination, I suppose. Uh, not doing things you've been born for and you know, giving yourself a time off. 
and now all my time is a time of uh, it is tricky. Would you say that you finishing the book also corresponded in a way with you finishing mourning your mother? Because she, as you described, or you tell in the book, she died, and I'm not sure when you started to write it, but mm-hmm. you can you can sense that that will be a part of it. Uh, I've thought about it, of course. Of course, I, I I thought about it, but no, I suppose that that the morning is is a thing uh, that never ends. You are just living with it more and more. Uh, Naturally, uh, but yeah, I had a, I, I felt a sort of a sort of relief. I I would love to think that if my mother would be able to read the book, maybe she would not disapprove. Which is well, 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 well which also could be tricky because uh, again, uh, I was using uh, letters and diaries and different kinds of materials uh, that I found in the family archive. And uh, writing about certain things, about certain stories, quoting letters with this kind of, with this level of exposure uh, is a bit problematic from the ethical point of view because uh, it is easy to ask uh, a living person if he has something or she has something against me publishing this excerpt. But it is different with the dead. You never know if they are satisfied or dissatisfied. You never know if they would allow this ray of light, this uh, stage-like way of exposing their secrets, their love letters, their clumsy choice of words, doing it so directly, so well, ruthlessly. But if you're building a, not a monument, I didn't plan to build a monument. I was trying to create a space, something like a glass display, where their existences would be visible, but uh, in a gentle light. And it was, it was important, and uh, again, I still don't know how it works, uh, quoting and uh, still uh, leaving some things not hidden, but not not open, not open like a like a wound, but open like a like a book page. And there is a difference. Marianne Hirsch, she has uh, written a, a text about the mother-daughter plot where she describes that that a daughter is traditionally giving a caregiving role and that therefore the pressures of intersubjective relationships marked by trauma emerge in especially sharp focus in that relation. And she's also quoting Spivak saying that even between the mother and the daughter, a certain historical withholding intervenes. Um, there's so much to talk about. We will continue talking about this in Malmö on Saturday, but I, I really, we really need to, to uh, 
talk a little bit about Marianne Hirsch and her concept of post-memory uh, in, in her book, The Generation of Post-Memory, which I know is an, an important reading for you. Could you tell us a little bit, what does the concept of post-memory, what is, has it meant to you in relation to writing this book? Uh, well, Marianne Hirsch, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, she, yeah, yeah, she's, uh, she's a scholar living in, Euro in, in New York City, and uh, she's the one that introduced the term post-memory. Uh, in her book, Generation of Post-Memory, which is pretty, pretty much important for me, uh, even more so than, uh, even more so that, well, she is, she's, a, uh, she's working in the field of Holocaust, post-Holocaust studies. Uh, and uh, what she's describing is a peculiar and very contemporary brand of sensibility uh, that belongs to the survivors of second or third generations. So not to the victims themselves, but to their uh, children or grandchildren. And uh, uh, the, the, mm, the uh, feeling, this sensibility, makes an important shift between the importance of your own life with its small details and uh, huge mm, events with its uh, uh, seemingly normal way of being. And the past, we are looking backwards to find. And uh, it is quite interesting. The person who is into that post-memory sensibility, post-memorial sensibility, is much more interested in the events and details of someone else's lives, in what was happening in 1932 or 1940, in the, uh, on the streets of some shtetl or uh, on, on the streets of Berlin, never mind. And uh, it is interesting, a, an exemplary post-memorial child, uh, and I do consider, uh, I never lost any one of my family uh, in the Holocaust, but I think that the sensibility could be extended. It is already extended to well, maybe the majority of humankind, and definitely, definitely to the people who are living at the European soil. Because uh, while I'm traveling, I'm encountering different people who are sharing with me the same brand of sensibility. And uh, it is quite simple to, to, to guess. It, uh, it is quite simple to find them. If you know all the bookstores, all the bakeries, uh, at the street when, where your grandmother used to live and, and simultaneously are forgetting uh, your own bakeries and bookstores of your own childhood, you are into post-memorial sensibility. And uh, I suppose that uh, uh, even uh, in this gathering, I will find, well, com comrades, uh, that are sharing the same feeling because, well, it is 
It is everywhere. We are very, we are very much fascinated with, not with history, not even with memory, but with the past. Its value is increasing with every decade. Just look, uh, for example, if we are entering an ordinary airport bookshop, uh, you remember how they used to look some 10 years ago. Uh, magazines, uh, newspapers, and maybe a couple of bestsellers in a couple of languages. But now the first thing you're encountering is a table with non-fiction literature that is devoted mainly to the events, faces, personalities of the past. And uh, it is becoming more and more important, even in political terms, because uh, we're witnessing the right turn, and every leader of this right turn is referring for an example of the perfect society, not to some utopian vision of the future, but to events of the past. And sometimes, or most of the times, it's the past that never existed. It's an invented past. And uh, I really think that it is becoming one more new cult, the cult of the past with its minute detail and uh, with its, uh, with its uh, problematic heritage. You cannot own the past, but sometimes it just seems you can. I will quote you now from LA Review. It's really interesting, this topic. This search for an example for a predecessor is pervasive. When Russian politicians try to achieve something, they look for validation from the past, to Ivan the Terrible, to Lenin, to Brezhnev, or whatever. The same with Russian poets, who still rely heavily on different traditions. You can choose the one you like. You can look back to Pushkin or Bodsky, but also, well, T.S. Eliot or Lynn Hedginian. It doesn't really matter. The important thing is we behave as if we are ascending the staircase, but looking back. One always needs to feel the banister under one's hand. That is, we need something solid and from the past, which makes the present feel more real for us. Which is instantly made me think of uh, uh, Alexander Vedensky. Mm -hmm. And there's a line in his in the wonderful book called uh, An Invitation for Me to Think, mm -hmm. which is something I kept <laughs> uh, remembering when reading your book as well. This as an invitation for me to think. But he says something, he writes something about that the solidity of the stone mm. uh, is not, what does it say, convincing him any longer, or he doesn't believe in it, or he cannot trust the solidity of, of the stone. Yeah. yeah, it seems that the stones are becoming less and less solid nowadays. <laughs> Made of porcelain, maybe. And uh, speaking of the past and the necessity of looking back towards the times of Peter the Great or whatever else, uh, uh, there is a story from a newspaper I'd love to share, because it is also dealing with Kazan, where you're planning to go. Uh, a guy was uh, arrested a few weeks ago in Kazan 
for doing something illegal, illegal. And the thing she, she, and the thing he did was speaking in rough terms of uh, the way Ivan Grozny was capturing Kazan in uh, 16th century. So he was treating Ivan the, Ivan the Terrible in an improper way, and that was the grounds for arresting him. Uh, that is an overly serious treatment of history. And uh, I should say that if the Russian citizens were involved into contemporary political discussion with the same level of intensity, maybe we would be living in a different political climate. So I'm just about to, to mention Mandelstam and talk about him a little bit, but also the way we spoke about Sagin's book before and, and you commenting on not trying to turn the book into a book about a heroine. Um, there is a way, I mean, it, it keeps reoccurring a structure of when you have on the on one hand on and on the other hand, you have a chapter on Sebald and Mandelstam together. You have uh, uh, Gold Chain, and you have another. It's in a way uh, I get the picture of the postcard over and over again, with the picture on the one hand and then the text on on the other hand. Um, although I would insist, or maybe that's because um, he amazes me. So that. Mandelstam keeps reoccurring in the text, lightly, small, tiny quotes uh, every now and then. And in a longer passage, uh, you are dis discussing his book of prose, uh, The Noise of Time, as a striking and, and very different and to connect with Tsetaeva uh, again, uh, criticized way of talking and writing about the past. But he's saying no, in a way, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, that is what is making this book, the book, uh, The Noise of the Times, so so special and so unique. Because the beginning of 20th century, the shift, the crush, the, 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 uh, the uh, final parting with an, with an old world, with an old order of things, it brought to life uh, lots of... Uh, Lots of great books devoted to to memory, to the to to, the, to different types of efforts of recapturing the essence of the past, uh, bringing it back to life. Uh, but uh, Mandelstam's uh, prose is unique because he is not trying to save the past. What he is trying to do is to reject the past in a final form that couldn't be altered. And oh, that is amazing. He is using the past as something you're pushing away from you to find some new strength, to gather some speed, to push yourself into a different life. And uh, that is an interesting approach, I suppose. And uh, maybe that's the attitude we might need in, in our times, because we are becoming too attached. Well, after writing uh, a lengthy book about past and memories, uh, 
uh, I'm not in the position to say so, and I'm fully sharing uh, that post-memorial impossibility of parting with anything, of throwing away a letter or a postcard or, I don't know, a broken, uh, broken cup. But still there is something weird about this impossibility. And I would love, what I would love to do is to want to want to step into the future. And it takes effort, I suppose. There is also a really interesting essay that you have written uh, and has been translated into English in your scene, uh, The Haunted House, uh, speaking of Russia today. And where also you are discussing the concept of trying to make history stop or in Putin's Russia, trying to create a form of status quo and uh, creating a situation where people actually don't even bother any longer to think mm -hmm. about a future or imagining a future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my idea was, uh, and I do still suppose uh, it is so, uh, that the political, political vision, political ideal of the Russian state is the stage of constant, of, of stasis. Uh, you are not supposed to be moving further. So it is uh, a course of constant repeating the historical cases and examples of uh, constant pastiches and st stylizations that are supposed to be to be productive, but of course they are not. Uh, I suppose that the Russian state is living in, in an order of uh, in, in a way of a tautological being, we are forced to be thinking, moving, existing in circles. And uh, yeah, the, 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 the fascination with the past, which is so common uh, in every strata of the Russian society, is also playing an, an, an important role. Uh, which is interesting because uh, there is something that happening maybe for the first time in, in a few hundreds of years uh, that, uh, that utter impossibility of picturing, of viewing the future as something inspiring or inviting. Uh, I've been teaching a little bit here and there, and uh, everywhere I'm doing that, I keep asking the students uh, to name a certain, well, any uh, popular movie they could recall, a uh, contemporary movie, that would be dealing with the future as something to long for, as something welcoming. And... Uh, here and there, and the, in Germany and in the U.S., they are doing the same thing. They're hesitating, and then after a pause, someone is saying, well, um, back to the future, <laughs> which was filmed in 1985. <laughs> so something had happened to our ability to see the future as something at least bearable. 
our version of the future or of the futures is a range of dystopias. And, uh, well, again, it doesn't help. Uh, we're having uh, the times present we are kind of dissatisfied with. And uh, we have the future times no one wants to enter. And the past is seemingly safe because it is at least stable. We think that we know what is happening there. Two uh, judgments on uh, Mandelstam um, and others with him is inner exile and uh, isolate and preserve, I guess preserve in English. Is that something you could ascribe to, to Russia and Russian politics today as well? Mm, well, uh, I, 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 I don't suppose they are really, well, if we're talking about the state, I don't suppose that uh, it is following the idea of preservation. It just wants to prolong its existence uh, in this political order. Uh, but uh, the idea of preservation is becoming more and more popular, and maybe not only in Russia, it is everywhere. Uh, for instance, uh, I do remember, uh, I've heard the stories about it, and I was going through the newspapers and magazines, how in the beginning of 60s, at the end of 50s, people were easily parting with the old furniture. People were, well, uh, uh, I still remember a number of, of cartoons, of, uh, of comic pictures dealing with it. Like a young pair is uh, dragging to the garbage bin some old chair from the 19th century because they want to buy something brand new, uh, newly designed, uh, something very modern. And strange as it seems, it was not considered to be unusual or, or unreasonable or anything else. It was just the order of things. Uh, the old is going away, uh, giving place for something new. As it was predicted, uh, there was a song uh, we were singing in the kindergarten, and uh, it was an old revolutionary song referring to the French original from the end of the 19th century. And the uh, main lines, a motto, so to speak, where uh, we are going to destroy all this world of violence. We are to demolish it completely to the roots. And then on the remains, we're going to build up a new order, our world. And those who were nothing would become everything. And uh, it doesn't work anymore as a political model. It doesn't work anymore even as, as an everyday way of living. No one, is, no one wants to break anything. Even if the thing is, uh, is silly, ugly, it still has a certain sentimental value to us. And uh, for a good reason, because we've seen too much things being broken. Uh, things, lives, uh, everything. Yes. We are living at the remains. And we are, I would say that we are 
the direct result of what had happened. We are living in the space that if the events, the tragic events of the 20th century wouldn't happen, they would be occupied by the completely different people. And uh, so we are simultaneously, we are the generations of survivors and, and beneficiaries of what had happened. And that's makes, that, that makes our existence, again, problematic in ethical terms. Uh, that is interesting, and maybe it gives some explanation of that fascination with the past and with the things that are also survivors of sorts. Um, before we end uh, tonight, um, I would just like to uh, gaze a little bit on uh, and mention your poetry. Um, your poetry has been described as a visa for a journey through the psyche of a diverse set of characters, from a soldier to a Chechen refugee. It made me think of, of Andre Belli's composite quotation as a way of working through language, as an incitement for uh, poetical language. You have said that poetry keeps you in shape. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that? Um, well, mm, to trying to put it short, uh, Josip Mandelstam was saying somewhere that uh, poetry is the state of inner righteousness, of being in the know that you are standing at the right place. And uh, I would love to feel this way, but it is different with me because I never feel right enough. For me, uh, for me, writing poetry is a necessity uh, because the thing that is shaping my ability to speak, uh, the timbre of my voice, the variety of voices, the thing that is making the whole construction work is a certain question no one bothered to ask, but still I can feel the, the outline of the question. And it is huge. It is a huge absence of something, a huge void I am trying to deal with. And so I am, you know, making circles around the void, trying to answer the question, or maybe formulate the question, using different means, different voices, different optics, different systems. And so uh, I guess that if you would be reading my stuff chronologically, uh, the changes would be quite visible. Because if you're unable to get closer to the question from this point, you have to change to change everything, to change the self, maybe. And uh, that's an important thing for me, that selves are replaceable, but the question stays the same. And uh, you, you're spending your lifetime trying to, uh, you know, when Gertrude uh, Stein was dying, her lifelong companion, Alice Toklas, was sitting at her bedside, 
and she suddenly woke up and uh, asked Alice, Alice, what's the answer? And uh, sh uh, she didn't know, sh sh uh, and that's what she told. Uh, I don't know. I asked, uh, said Stan, then what's the question? Let's get back to that on Saturday evening in Malmö. Thank you so much. And thank you, thank you. so much for coming.